funny how? It'd be funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. Welcome to Silver Screen Video. My name is Jacob. I'm here with my co-host, Jonathan. Today we got a special treat for you. Uh, John, what is that special treat? What director are we going to cover today? That special treat is Catherine Bigelow. It might Hell be Catherine yeah. M. Bigelow. I'm not sure. Catherine M. Bigelow? Is Possibly. that her middle name? I don't know. Um, it just sounds right. Catherine Ann Bigelow. Catherine Ann Bigelow. There yeah. we go. Perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we're going to talk about her movies. As we mentioned in the last episode... We are going to tackle them chronologically. So for this episode, we're going to go over her first three movies. We are only including features, so no shorts. And uh, also, speaking of last episode, if you listened to it, and we're hoping you did, we did have some mic issues in it, and hopefully we got those figured out. That was our second time recording it. And to those of you that have listened and sent us in some positive comments, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Hell yeah. We're going to start out this week, though, by uh, going over some of the some of our most anticipated films of 2020. Uh, it's January, New Year. It's always exciting to uh, kind of follow the film festival circuit and see what movies are coming out, what movies are getting, you know, good reception. And uh, so, yeah. So what I'm going to do is, uh, John, you know nothing about this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through this article that I found and list off some of the more interesting movies that are going to be coming out this year. And uh, what are you going to do? You're going to tell me what your scale of one to 10. No, no, no. Hold on. You're going to do a scale of one to 2020. How excited you are about this movie. Okay. So 2020 being the most excited, like like. (laughs) 2020 being the absolute, you're just, squirming in your little in your little car seat to go see uh, that the makes movie. me uncomfortable <laughs> so, <laughs> so 2020 is uh is the, the the 10 of the scale and of course one is you know is i'm not looking forward to it at all and if i haven't heard of it what do i do no no, no. this is i'm going to describe what the movie's about who's in it who's directing it i'm giving oh, i'm going to okay. give you all the information you're going to need oh fuck yeah this will be easy okay yeah all right, so um, yeah, no, no, no surprises here. This is going to be all like uh, you know, like mainstream stuff. Um, okay, first off, we got a movie that is not actually going to come out this year. It looks like it's not going to be ready until 2021, so you can adjust your scale accordingly. Um, it's Martin Scorsese's next movie, Killers of the Flower Moon, with both 2021. <laughs> I already know what it's about. It's got Leo and De Niro in it. I'm super pumped about this movie. Sorry, I already knew about this. Hell yeah! So Leo and De Niro. So, but what is what is it about? If you know what it's about, I actually don't know. I, I know it's based on a book, but I don't know exactly what the book is about. It's based on a true story, and it's about a Native American tribe called the Osage. And apparently, they struck oil. I'm going to read the book before I watch the movie. But apparently, they found some oil on their property, or something happened. And I think it was in the 1920s, and it involved J. Edgar Hoover, which I found interesting since Leo already played J. Edgar. In a oh, movie. shit. Um, yeah. I don't know who Leo is playing, though, um, but it's about mysterious murders. And like these guys are getting knocked off left and right. It sounds really interesting, and I'm looking forward to checking the book out. Dude, hell yeah. And it's a nonfiction book, right? Like it's a true story and all that. Yeah, true story. Yeah, all that's real. Hell yeah. 
Yeah, that does sound that does sound dope. Um, yeah, apparently his uh, his press run on the Irishman and all the award season stuff is going to be what bumps this movie to twenty twenty one. But hey, you know, um, any th- any Scorsese movie, no matter when we get it, is a good one. Oh fuck yeah! Not to mention, I mean, we got the Irishman in late twenty nineteen. So the fact that we're getting another Scorsese film within two years uh, that's that's pretty fucking awesome. Hell yeah! All right, so. Um, Going along those same lines, one of Scorsese's uh, collaborators, Paul Schrader, is going to be putting out his follow-up to First Reformed, uh, one of my favorite movies of the decade, really. Um, It's going to be called The Card Counter. Have you heard of this movie? I have not. All right. It's got Oscar Isaac, and he plays a gambler who aims to straighten out his own life by discouraging a young man from taking revenge on a mutual enemy. Um, so yeah, what do you, what do you think about that? One to 2020, what's your, what's your excitement level? Um, well, I'm excited. Let me try to put okay. a number to it because I'm a big Oscar Isaac fan. Um, but star Wars really left a bad taste in my mouth with him. So right. I'm going to look past that, be mature about it. I will say 1500. 1500, not a bad score. Brand new Paul Schrader movie. Um, yeah, yeah, and I like Paul Schrader. Obviously, we went over what he's written and uh, and all that when we talked about First Reform. So, you know, it's going to be layered with some interesting emotions and beliefs and all that shit. So, sure, love a good gambling picture too. You know, maybe this will get the uncut gems bump. You know, um, yeah, I really hope. Like, yeah, because like speaking of going back to Scorsese, uh, the one he made. Uh, Tom Cruise. What was the name of that movie? It was a sequel. Uh, it's about a pool of the hustler sequel of the hustler. Um, yeah. Right. 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 What was that movie called? Anyway, I miss, yeah, I miss, uh, I miss like old school gambling pictures. Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. Do you know what kind of gambler he is? Well, I don't, it, it doesn't say anything. It says a gambler and it says card counter. So I'm assuming it would be like uh, blackjack. Yeah. Blackjack. I'm assuming it would be blackjack, but I don't know. For well, sure. let, let me put this caveat on there. If we find out it has to do with Texas Hold'em, which I am a huge fan and play right. often, uh, I will take my interest from 1500 to 2000. Wow. Okay. All right. Paul Schrader, you're on notice, buddy. You need to do a quick rewrite of that script in order to get the uh, silver screen video audience bump. So uh, I have heard he listens. So yeah, he's a big listener. Him and Oscar Isaac both are probably listening right now. So, uh, so yeah. Okay. So the next one is uh, Steven Spielberg's new movie. Um, probably one of the more, and I, I, I was going to say this about Paul Schrader, but I'll say it about Spielberg too. I feel like these are all people we should do um, series on um, in the future. Absolutely. Um, but Spielberg, boy, what an interesting body of work his, 21st century has turned out to be for both better and worse. But for this year, he is going to be putting out uh, West Side Story, uh, which is an adaptation of, of course, the 1957 musical. And I feel like people always say this, um, but apparently it's going to be more based on the original Broadway show than it actually is the movie. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I don't know. What do you think about that? It's going to be uh, released on December 18th. Jets and Sharks, baby. What do you think? Uh, because it's Spielberg, I'll give it a little bump, uh, 500. Wow. 500. I could not give less of a fuck about West side story. I'm sorry. Okay. All <laughs> right. Just, hey, hey, this I is just a safe don't space. care. 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This is a video safe space, but I love Spielberg. Obviously I'm going to watch it. All right. December 18th, Jets and Sharks. Uh, yeah. Okay. Which team do you fall on? Jets and Sharks. Mm, well, I definitely remember uh, which one was which from the original movie. Uh, so Sharks? I, I have no idea. I don't know. Mm, I do Jets, like the original. Because, oh, oh I, I was just talking about Jets and Sharks like in general. Because like, if you're a jet, you could literally bomb the ocean and like kill the shark. Oh, okay. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah, okay. Jets I, were I honestly... If I'm being honest, I don't know if I've ever sat through the entire West Side Story, like up front, total disclosure. Damn, okay. So, West Side Story is good. I saw it at the, uh, uh, remember the Sanger Theater in Pensacola, where we're both from? Oh, fuck yeah. That would have been cool to see it in Sanger Theater. Okay. Yeah, they, yeah, they did like a summer movie series and they showed it and it was uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, Justin Okay, I could, I could see liking that then, yeah. Okay, so next up we got, I know you know about this, uh, Denis Villeneuve. Is that how you say his last name? You know, it's up in the air. I always say Denis Villeneuve, but uh, I think we've came a long way. I think most people used to call him Denis Villeneuve. <laughs> so <laughs> I feel like uh, this is what happens when you have a French name that's hard to pronounce. Right, 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 right. Well, either way, we're talking about Dune, obviously, the 1965 novel by Frank Herbert. Um, Just a quick history lesson. David Lynch made one in 1984. Um, Alejandro Jodorowsky tried to get a product off the ground, and they actually made a really good documentary about his attempts because he he tried to make that movie with the creative team behind Ridley Scott's Alien. and then uh, Ridley Scott moved on to Blade Runner. Denny Villeneuve uh, brought the uh, Ridley Scott Blade Runner movie back into the public consciousness. Now he's digging back into Dune. Uh, the cast is stacked. Timothy Chalamet, Rebecca Ferguson, Oscar Isaac, again, my man Eaton this year, Josh Brolin, Stellan Skarsgård, Dave Bautista, Zendaya, Charlotte Rampling, Jason Momoa, and Javier Bardem. Got to be high for this one, right? Uh, twenty twenty. Yeah, I would say twenty twenty two. This is, I mean, come on. It, well, I mean, some people have made the jokes that it has the sexiest cast of the year. Um, okay, that's a hell of a cast. Like, I don't really know if I agree with the sexiest cast. That's just a funny joke, but that is a hell of a cast. And I'll tell you this: Blade Runner twenty forty nine was a fucking home run. Like, it was so beautiful. The cinematography. I mean, everything about that was so well directed. But I'll tell you, a very underappreciated segment of the film, I feel, was Dave Bautista's role in it. So I'm very excited to see what he does in Dune because I thought he really did a great job in like the 10 minutes he was in it. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good take. I mean, Blade Runner 2049, I mean, is just incredible. Yeah, I uh, I don't know. Looking forward to this movie. God, you're right. What a bunch of studs in this movie. I mean, Timothy Chalamet, you know, not my cup of tea, but... Uh, yeah, he's all right. He's a big. He's a big. He has a big following among the uh, twink attracted among us. Uh, we got studs like Oscar Isaac, Josh Brolin, of course, Dave Bautista, Jason Momoa. I mean, come on, you know this is. Uh, you're right. This is the. This is the hunk cast of uh, of 2020. Well, Rebecca Ferguson too. I love her. She's awesome. Right, um, right, right. Rebecca Ferguson. Hey, I noticed how you kind of skim past the whole Bautista take. Are you disagreeing with me? Because it's cool. I'm just curious. No, no, no. I like Dave Bautista. I like his his, his role. I'm, I'm going to be honest. While you were talking about it, I was like, 
Hmm. Dave Bautista, Blade Runner. I know he was in it, but which part? And it took me a while to remember the, that part at the beginning. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I'm with you. Dave Bautista is an underrated. Um, have you ever, have you ever actually seen, this is a recommendation to our audience out there. Have you ever seen, um, Oh God damn it. I think it's kickboxer retaliation. You ever seen that movie on Netflix? No, but I have heard he's in it and I've heard it's not bad. I have not seen it. I am not a big fan of the kickboxer franchise. I'm going to be honest. It's amazing. He is really, okay. he's really, really good in it. He's like, I mean, he's essentially just an action hero villain and it's, it's really similar to like uh blood sport, you know? Um, but like, it's, yeah, it rules. I mean, it's on Netflix. It's one of those movies that you just like crank up on like a Saturday morning and barely pay attention to, but it's, it's fun. Okay. Um, okay. I usually watch cartoons on Saturday mornings, but teach his own. <laughs> what kind of cartoons do you watch on Saturday morning? Um, I like to pretend like this is still the 1990s. So, you know, Ninja Turtles, things like that. Okay. I'm, a yeah, strictly... I'm just joking. I haven't watched cartoons on a Saturday morning, probably since I was knee high to a grasshopper, as they say. I'm uh, I'm strictly a Pixar man on Saturdays. You know, it's when I, it's when I like to curl up and watch my, watch cars three for the 35th time, you know, and, um, oh yeah, Cars Three. That's their. That's that's the greatest hits for them. Yeah, and eat my uh, cereal with a big boy spoon. That's what I like to do on Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. In all seriousness, though, uh, you really don't get better than Batman the Animated Series and uh, the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Like I would, I would die on that hill to argue with anyone. Those are arguably two of the greatest cartoon children's cartoons ever made i will say um i don't i'm not that familiar with the teenage with the original teenage mutant ninja turtles although i did watch it but the yeah batman the animated series is a classic but you know what else i think is is along the same lines is the original x-men series from the 90s remember that absolutely oh yeah the greatest intro song ever and they dealt with some very dramatic elements like it's on hulu i've I've read i've watched them all within the last couple of years yeah, some of those shows rule, man. Especially, I think Batman is probably the best and the most like acclaimed nowadays. Um, but yeah, dude, Kevin okay. fucking Conroy, man. Okay, but we digress. What's the next movie? Next one is uh, your favorite filmmaker, Terrence Malick, uh, The Last Planet. Um, he filming is wrapped, but he says post production may take about a year because we have a lot of material since we filmed digital. I think he filmed digitally for the first time. Um, basically, it is a Bible story. Um, uh, a young, a Hungarian actor named Geza Rorig will portray Jesus, whose life story is to be told through a series of parables. Mark Rylance will be Satan, and also Ben Kingsley and Joseph Fiennes are going to be in this movie. Okay, let me tell you. The only thing that's saving this movie from being a fucking zero is uh, is I love Mark Rylance. He's fucking awesome. Uh, I think the uh, the Bridge Spy movie was one of the most underrated movies to come out that year with him and Tom Hanks. Can't remember the name of it. Okay. Uh, he was also great in Dunkirk. Needless to say, I'm a big fan. I'm also a huge fan of Joseph Fiennes. Um, you think it's going to take Terrence Malick a, a year just to try to wash down as much pretentiousness as he can out of it? Because I feel like if he released it how it is now, uh, you know, people might go into artistic overload. My God. Um, All right. Moving you know on. Yeah, I, that, that was a cheap shot. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, no, I would say uh, this is a cool 50. 
Jesus yeah. Christ. Right, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> actually, okay, I'm going to go 2020 for me, and we're going to move on. All right, uh, David Lowry is a filmmaker um, who made uh, Peach Dragon for Disney, um, The Old Man and the Gun, that movie. We talked about that, I think, on last episode. Big man, big fan of David Lowry. Uh, and a ghost story. Have you seen a ghost story? I have. Dude, it's so good. I love it. Talk about a study of uh, how to process grief. Oh, what a brutal movie. I love that movie so much, though. Yeah, no, me too. It's great. Anyways, my guy David Lowry is making a movie that Terrence Malick has tried to get off the ground for years, which is an um, adaptation of the 14th century uh Middle English poem, Sir Goblin and the Green Knight. It's just called Green Knight. So it looks like this is kind of going to be like a medieval uh, fantasy. It looks like it has a pretty high budget. It's got Dev Patel, um, Alicia Vikander, and Sean Harris. Um, Yeah, I don't know know what to make of that one. What do you think? Well, if it wasn't for the fact that it has Dev Patel, who's probably going to be a leading role in it, I would say 2020. Um, But because he's just awful. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I'm going to knock it down to like a 20, a 20, 2100, 2100. Yeah, um, that sounds all right. 2100. And, uh, Jonathan, I know that you, uh, we both graduated from the same, um, underfunded, uh, Christian oh, private wait a school. Minute. <laughs> so you'll actually realize that 2100 is actually more I mean, than 2020. So, uh, I meant, hold on, hold on, hold on. What did I mean? Uh, 2020. <laughs> yeah, what did you mean? Hold on, I think I'm at 1900. <laughs> what makes this even funnier um, is you've been counting to 2020 your entire life. Like, you know what, what I mean? mean? Like, like 2018, 2019, 2020. Oh, yeah. 2005, okay. 2006. And somehow you, you still know got it wrong. Yeah, you, let's just erase all this. I'm not going <laughs> to edit it out. I prefer to be honest with the audience. Let's say, uh, let's say 1500 and call it a day. All right. Um, okay, next one, quick hit. Uh, Todd Haynes, who I think is a really great filmmaker. Carol, I'm Not There, love his movies. Uh, Far From Heaven, big fan. He's making a documentary about the Velvet Underground. Any thoughts on this? No thoughts, won't watch it. Uh, zero. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I love Todd Haynes, and I like the Velvet Underground. I will not be watching this movie. So, Well, like, I don't give a shit about the Velvet Underground. Todd Haynes is all right. Uh I really wanted to see Dark Waters when it was in theaters um, because he directed that. It was in theaters a couple months ago. Wait, he directed um, Dark Waters. Yeah, and I, no I was a huge, I was a huge fan of I'm Not There. Um, so if this was a movie about Velvet Underground, I would totally watch it. But since it's not, um, and it's a documentary, odds are I will not be watching this uh, film. Yeah, I'm with you. Who cares? Um, all right, next up, Sofia Coppola's next movie. Um, I'm kind of excited about this. It's called On the Rocks. Uh, Rashida Jones is the main character. Uh, she It's about her reconnecting with her father, Bill Murray, of course, uh, during an adventurous outing in New York City. Um, the cast also includes Marlon Wayans and Jenny Slate. What about this? I'm excited about this one. I'm going to be honest. Well, I'll tell you, I loved everybody you said. Um, aside from one person who, you know, we like to be honest on this podcast. I don't like Bill Murray. Um, wow. okay. I, I think that, uh, I don't understand the love affair people have with Bill Murray, but I loved everybody else. You mentioned Rashida Jones is a fucking badass. She is, uh, 
She's a hell of a director and she's a hell of an actress. Um, so I will watch this. I will say uh, a thousand. A thousand. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 um, no. 1200, 1200. 1200. Okay. Yeah. yeah I, um, I don't know. I think the Bill Murray love has gotten a little bit corny, you know, over the years. Um, but I do like Bill Murray. I think he's uh, very charming, especially in his dramatic roles, Lost in Translation, Masterpiece, etc. Have you seen any of Rashida Jones's uh, directing work? Um, didn't she make a movie about porn? She did. She made a, well, not that. She made a movie about the problem. I mean, it's kind of about porn. It is about it's called Hot Girls Want It, and it's about the exploitation and like the cam industry and the porn industry. Um, hey, Hot Girls also- Want It. What is it? My memoir. Wow. Yeah, we're going to enter in some uh, some old drum beats there. Uh, uh, Quincy is was really good. She made a documentary about Quincy Jones, and that was really good. Okay. But isn't that her dad? But yeah. Uh, yes, it is. Hmm. All right. Um, okay, next up we've got uh, a director named Ka- who goes by Kogo Nada. Um, I don't know who this person is or people are. But they make video essays um, that have been, you know, sort of uh, about different movies and stuff. But they made a movie last year called Columbus. Uh, did you ever see that movie with uh, uh, what's his name from uh, from uh, fuck? What is that guy's name? Who was in that horror movie you were telling me about? I don't know the horror movie that's based on the internet or whatever. Oh yeah, John Cho. John Cho. That's right. Yeah. Um, did you did you ever see that last year, Columbus? I did not. What what is that? It's a movie about he goes back home because his um his father die is dying or something, and it's like a, it's like Garden State, but it's really artsy and really good, and the cinematography is pretty beautiful. Um, yeah. Anyways, he's making a movie with Colin Farrell. Um, yeah, we can skip that one. Who cares? Um, uh, hold, on, hold on, I like Colin Farrell. I'll uh, I'll give it eight hundred. Okay. All right, 800. If you're keeping it. score at home, that's 800 for the Kogo Nada movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next up, we got a little trio by Netflix. Uh, first up, we got uh, Spike Lee's uh, new movie. Um, wait, hold on. Yes, Spike Lee's new movie, his follow-up to Black Klansman. Uh, it's about four African-American veterans returning to Vietnam in search of the remains of their fallen squad leader, wait for it, and buried treasure. It's called, uh, hold on, it's called The Five Bloods, and the cast is led by Chadwick Boseman. I gotta say, I'm looking forward to this. This sounds like a good idea for a movie. Full disclosure, I already knew about that movie, and my excitement level is a 2020. Yeah, it sounds like it's awesome, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. I was fucking pumped about it when I heard Chadwick Boseman talking about it when he was doing an interview for something else uh, a few months ago. Hell yeah. Okay, next one is uh, Charlie Kaufman's next movie. Uh, Adaptation. uh, What else has he made? Adaptation, being John Malkovich. uh, Schenectady, New York. I don't know how to say that. Um, And then the movie with the puppets from a couple years back. Anyways. Yes. His next movie is called I'm Thinking of Ending Things, and it is based on a, uh, a Hitchcockian thriller of a novel. Um, yeah, that's all the really the information about it, but it's going to be on Netflix. So I don't know. Charlie Kaufman's next movie. What do you, what do you think? 
I briefly, I briefly heard about this uh, a thousand. Yeah, I can't say I'm excited. That's a, there's not very much information out about it, you know. Yeah, I'm gonna need my excitement level could change, um, but I mean, right now that's where I'm at. Also, quick thing: Paul Walter Hauser is also in Spike Lee's new movie, and I am a huge fan of his, and that's another reason I'm excited. So, quick plug here: if you have not seen Richard Jewell, you need to see it because that movie deserves more love. So watch it when it hits VOD, and if it's still playing in theaters near you, please go see it. Is this directed at me because I haven't seen it yet? Oh, no, no, no. I mean, obviously, I would. Uh, you, I want you to watch it so we can talk about it, but I mean, everybody. The movie got almost no love, and it was fucking great. Like, it almost made my top 10 of the year. Like, it was a really solid movie, and his performance alone and Kathy Bates, I mean, Jesus, it was, it was fucking great. I can't believe the lack of appreciation that movie got. That's who and her there. All right, I feel like a little bit of a personal attack, but whatever. Um, uh, no personal attack here. All right, moving on. Uh, this is the movie that I'm most excited about for this year. Um, and you probably already know about this. This is David Fincher's next movie. Um, it is a screenplay written by his father, Jack Fincher, who is the chief editor of Life magazine uh, for many years. And it's called Mank, M-A-N-K. And it's based on a months-long period in 1940 that prolific screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz spent working with Orson Welles on the screenplay for Citizen Kane. Um, it is going to be shot by the same cinematographer uh, who shot Gone Girl, and it's going to be in black and white. The cast is Gary Oldman as Mankiewicz, uh, Tom Burke from The Souvenir as Orson Welles. Interested to see that. Uh, Amanda Seyfried is going to be Marion Davies, who, of course, was the uh, actress paramour of William Randolph Hearst, who Citizen Kane was based on. Um I'm going to go out on a limb. I think this is probably going to be the the Irishman of this year. It's going to be like the Netflix's big release towards the end of the year. What do you think about this? I'm more excited about this than I am anything, I think. Uh, I'm not more excited about that than anything, but 2020. I mean, yeah. it's fucking David Fincher. I mean, I don't even need to know what it's about. There are certain directors out there where you hear they're making a movie and you watch it. Like, you don't ask questions. Right. Um. I briefly heard about this movie. I didn't know much about it, but it's, it's David Fincher. I mean, uh, honestly, the man can, it's, it is rare that he has a misfire. Right. Very rare. Um, so I'm excited. Yeah. I'm definitely, uh, looking forward to that. Um, okay. So just a couple more here. Uh, Andrew Dominic, um, it's been 10 full years since Andrew Dominic has announced that he was going to direct uh, a novel called Blonde, which is a 700-page fictionalization of the life of Marilyn Monroe. Uh, Naomi Watts was originally cast and then replaced by Jessica Chastain. Well, now Anna de Armas is the lead, um, and she is um, from Blade Runner, actually, bringing it full circle. Adrian Brody is going to play Arthur Miller. Bobby Cannavale is going to play Joe DiMaggio which is interesting. And here's a quote from Andrew Dominic that really is intriguing. He says, my previous three movies have relied on a lot of talking and I don't think there's a scene in blonde that's longer than two pages. I'm really excited about doing a movie. That's an avalanche of images and events. What do you think about this? Okay. Real quick. I have a love hate relationship with Andrew Dominic. Okay. Let's hear Um, it. Chopper was interesting. That was his that was his debut feature. 
Okay. The assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford is arguably the greatest Western made, like traditional Western made in the 2000s and maybe even farther back than that. It was a masterpiece of a film. If someone told me that assassination of Jesse James was the best Western since Unforgiven, I would believe them. I think that's, I think that's accurate. I, you know, the only gray area I'm in here is, are we considering no country for old man, a Western? Okay. Well, that's fair, but still it's a, it's a great movie. Yeah. Yeah. It is for sure. Killing them softly should have been great with that cast, that material, but he beats you over the head with some social commentary. And by the end of the movie, I was like, fuck you. Um, I actually love that movie like a lot. In fact, I thought about putting it on my decade list. I mean, it was like one of like 30 that I considered, but it was, I really liked that movie a lot. No, no, I liked it too, but he got, he was so fucking heavy handed that it, it, it didn't allow me to enjoy it as much as I should have. That's true. I get um, that. So in terms of this movie, obviously I want to see it because I, he will forever like I shouldn't have said love hate to begin with. I, I think because I mean the assassination of Jesse James that that buys him so much goodwill. Right. Um, so I'm gonna watch it. I would guess my excitement level is like a thousand eight hundred somewhere in there. I'm looking forward to this one. Interesting cast. Um, it, it's it's going to be interesting because he says there's not a lot of talking in it, which. Anna de Armas, I mean, I think she with blonde hair could definitely like look like Marilyn Monroe, but she's got a pretty heavy Cuban accent. So like, I wonder, you know, I wonder if this is going to be like mainly visual, like, is it going to be kind of like maybe once upon a time in Hollywood where Marilyn Monroe is not the main character. Maybe she's kind of a side character. I don't know. I'm, I got a lot of questions and I don't know. I'm sure it's going to be good though. Um, Yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned her again because I think she's great. She was a standout in Knives Out, and that was a cast that it's hard to stand out in. Right. And uh, she's really talented. So I think she can do it. She'll just have to get with a good speech coach. She was also great in Blade Runner 2049. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Okay. So next up, uh, Steven Soderbergh made two movies for Netflix last year, High Flying Bird and Laundromat. I only saw the first one. Um, he's making Let Them All Talk, which stars Meryl Streep as a celebrated author on holiday with her old friends. That's all really all the information about it. Um, I don't know. Soderbergh making two movies in a row with Meryl Streep. Kind of interesting. Thoughts on Soderbergh? Uh, 1500. It's Soderbergh and Meryl Streep. That's enough to get me to watch it. And it's on Netflix. Actually, 1800 because I'm going to watch it because it's on Netflix. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, Yeah. Okay, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, his next movie is going to be coming out this year. It's untitled. Um, Apparently, it centers on a child star attending high school in Southern California in the 1970s. And apparently, it has a bunch of interweaving narratives similar to uh, Magnolia. Um, So maybe PTA going back to his roots a little bit? I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I don't know. I'll watch it. Um... I'd be surprised if he gets it out in 2020, honestly, because it's probably going to take a lot. I mean, last I heard, it was still in pre-production. Um, yeah, it says so, that it says that he will. Wait, hold on. Where did I just see that? Oh, it says that he's scheduled to begin shooting in spring or summer. Yeah, if he shoots in summer, it's hard to figure out, or it's hard to think that it would be released this year, unless they've got him locked in for an Oscar run. Either right. way, uh, 1,200. All right. Um, wow, we've spent some time on this bad boy, haven't we? 
Um, yeah, how many more you got? <laughs> all right, two more. Let's do two more. Okay, okay. Uh, the new Wes Anderson movie, The French Dispatch, which is, quote, a love letter to journalists set in an outpost of an American newspaper in a fictional 20th century French city. Uh, 2020. 2020. Deep breath. 2020. Deep breath for this cast. Chalamet, Saoirse Ronan, Jason Schwartzman, Leah Sedu, Kate Winslet, Willem Dafoe, Bill Murray, Elizabeth Moss, Benicio Del Toro, Tilda Swinton, Christoph Waltz, Adrian Brody, Owen Wilson, Francis McDormand, Jeffrey Wright, Griffin Dunn, Rupert Friend, Bob Balaban. Yeah, I mean, come on. Uh, 3,000. <laughs> All right, last. I mean, it's Wes Anderson. I mean, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do a, a, a we're gonna do a whole feature on him at some point. So yeah, yeah that's true. Okay, so last uh, but certainly not least, uh, Francis McDormand will be joining Denzel Washington and Brendan Gleeson next month as her husband begins shooting his first solo project without his brother. Twenty twenty. It is going to be an adaptation of Shakespeare's Macbeth. I've already read all about this, and when I when I found out that it was a that it was a solo Cohen brother, I was like, okay, okay. And then, like, they haven't he hasn't said what he's going to do about the setting yet, but they cast Denzel, Brendan Gleeson, Francis McDormand. I I don't even give a fuck what happens. Like, he could tell me he's doing a a, a, a like a like a fucking slapstick comedy of Macbeth and I'll be like, okay, I'm there opening day. You know, I always thought Ethan had the more, um, the, the more like humor sensibility in that relationship. So I would not be surprised at all. If this was just a straightforward adaptation that he absolutely nails, you know, but I hope like, I I don't know. I don't want to see a traditional adaptation. I want to see something that he's going to be able to bring, like I know he's going to bring something interesting to it, but we already saw Macbeth in 2015 with the great Michael Fassbender oh, and that's right, um, that's right, yeah, Marion Cotillard. So I loved it, but they had to really cut it down. Um, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I want him to not do traditional. I would love to see a modern day, maybe set in some small rural town. Macbeth. Right. I think it could be a lot of fun if he does something crazy with it. Interesting. Yeah, I um, the I didn't I, I didn't like the one thing about that Macbeth adaptation from 2015 was which was when they have the death of the kid at the beginning, which kind of gives them like a little bit of a sympathetic turn at the beginning of the movie, and it's like no, these like Macbeth and his wife are supposed to be just like villains who get you know what i mean they're supposed to be like evil like they're not supposed to have like some sympathetic death of a child at the beginning you know i agree um but i don't care if it opened up with like michael fassbender slaughtering his whole family he'll always have my sympathy so (laughs) that's exactly yeah okay all right so that is our 2020 movie preview that's about that's a good solid 30 minutes folks um yeah that was good stuff because some of those i'd never heard of yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it'd be a good idea to kind of preview, um, you know, some of that stuff. And honestly, most of those movies we will probably discuss in some form or another on here. Um, just because, uh, you know, yeah, most of them are, are interesting uh, developments in the in the world of of cinema. So, um, okay, John, what do you think? We'll go right into our Catherine Bigelow uh, retrospective, right? Let's do it. But I will say we had agreed to talk about each film for about fifteen minutes. 
some of these I don't know. Like we'll we'll play it by ear. We'll just yeah. see what feels natural because uh yeah, one of these movies I did not enjoy. Right. Um but we will that's the point of doing this. And and you know, just to make it more fun, we did not talk about this off pod, so neither of us have any idea what the other one is talking or thought about something. Right. So we are doing The Loveless, which came out in 1981. Right. Near Dark came out in 1987. And Blue Still came out in 1990. So these are the three films we are about to discuss. I thought what I'd do first is maybe give a little bit of background on Catherine Bigelow, and then we jump right into The Loveless. Let's do it. Um, Okay, so Catherine Bigelow is a little bit of an interesting character. Um, She was born in the Bay Area um, in, in San Francisco in 1951. So she came of age in 1950s and 1960s San Francisco. And she first went to college at the uh, San Francisco Art Institute in 1970. And she received a bachelor's degree in painting. That's originally what she wanted to do. She wanted to be a painter. So this is, you know, this is uh, 60s, 70s, you know, artsy San Francisco. This is where she comes from. Um, her, oh, and I, I do want to shout this out. Her mother was a librarian and her father was, uh, worked in a paint factory. So, uh, we got, we have to shout out a working class director, you know, um, always appreciate someone who came from, a you know, less than elite background who made their way into the, the business, so to speak. Um, so yeah. And then she went to New York and New York was really a formative experience for her because she attended Columbia's university's film program, uh, about a, uh, about a, f- a floor up one flight up from where I will be uh, teaching in a couple of weeks. Um, she studied with, uh, Susan Sontag, Andrew Saris, Edward Said. I mean, some absolute fucking legends. She studied theory and criticism. And it was then at Columbia and in New York in the seventies, where she decided that she did not want to be a painter anymore, that her specific art that she wanted to do is cinema. She wanted to make movies. And this is when she kind of made the decision. I mean, you think about this. Her first movie she released in 1981. So she's 30 years old by the time she's making her first movie. And so she kind of has time to mature as an artist. And she has already decided by the time 1981 rolls around, that not only is she going to make movies instead of being a painter, but she is going to make action movies. She's quoted very, very early on uh, during that formative period of New York, where she says pure cinema is action cinema. So this is someone who is approaching action movies and genre movies specifically as a way, uh, as, as a, as a means of artistic expression. Um, So I do think it is kind of a, I think it's kind of lame to like, uh, you know, take a movie like Kickboxer Retaliation, for example, and like read a bunch of like thematics into it because it was probably just made by a guy who was just like, cool, let's have a bunch of punching and hitting and stuff. I think Catherine Bigelow is a little bit different because she does come from like an artsy background. I mean, this is a woman who had a, you know, a graduate degree, a master's degree by the time she was like 25. So, I mean, she's, she's approaching action cinema from a specifically theoretical theoretical and conceptual background that is a bit different than maybe the typical action director or the typical um uh yeah than the typical action director she is self-consciously trying to make art from day one um so that being i i 
I think that's very obvious. I'm glad you kind of gave this little thing about it. I think that's very obvious in one movie we're going to discuss, not sure. this episode, um, but the next one. Not to say that she didn't have any art in these three movies, but in one of them in particular, there's a lot of things that you can tell like she she cared deeply about um, in, in her message. So yeah, I'm glad you uh, I'm glad you said all that. Yeah, so let's go into it, man. Uh, well, give us a give us a little uh, uh, not background, but necessarily, but uh, like what what is the Loveless about, and uh, what kind of movie is it? Who's in the cast? Tell us a little bit about it. The Loveless is an interesting movie here. Okay, it is barely a feature film. It it, it comes in at like eighty two minutes with credits. Right. So that's the first thing off the top. Um, the synopsis is. Trouble ensues when a motorcycle gang stops in a small southern town while heading to the races at Daytona. So off the bat, within the first five minutes of the movie, we get a very obvious Me Too moment um, involving Willem Dafoe's character. <laughs> so it was um, it was interesting. OK, I'm going to come out and say it. I didn't like this movie. OK, Um so I watched this movie and I made some notes for everything. Do you just want me to go into like what I thought about it? And then you tell me. You yeah, let's like go that? into it, man. Let's go into it. Okay. Thing? This is Willem Dafoe's first leading role. He was supposed to be in another movie in 1980, but he got fired. So this is technically his, the first time the world saw him as a star. Um, okay. It's very clear. They like motorcycles, a lot of leather, a lot of zoom ins, a lot of motorcycle mechanical shop talk and shit. Sure. Um, it's very over the top. The characters are very try hard. Um, very. Willem Dafoe is like the epitome of like um, someone who's trying so hard you might would call them a poser. Um, I will say I made all my notes because I don't like to read any reviews until after I've given it enough thought on my own. So after I made my notes, I read some of the reviews and I was very uh, amused by the fact that so many people were saying exactly what I thought. So it's not just me saying this because sometimes when everyone else is saying something different, you maybe second guess yourself. Sure. Um, I'm not going to say it's a bad biker movie because when you look at what a biker gang is and you take out the excitement of like a Sons of Anarchy type of thing – a biker movie, it's about a bunch of dudes who wear leather jackets and go from town to town and participate in races and go to Daytona and spend a lot of time in California or New York. Sure. And that's bikers. So this is about that. Very tedious. They were sitting around their character. Some of the characters show up later and Willem Dafoe is like, hey, what, where the fuck you been? Um, the sl- There was very sloppy film editing. I thought some of the cuts, I the cuts were so bad in some parts, I thought my internet messed up. Wow. Um, like there were some scenes where I was like, I had to click back because I was watching it on Amazon Prime because it is on Prime in case anybody wants to watch it. I had to click back to make sure my internet didn't fuck up. Um, the sound editing wasn't the best, but that's really to be expected because for some reason, nobody figured out how to make a nun, a gun noise appropriately until like the late 90s. <laughs> uh, in every action movie, cop movie, whatever, in like the 80s, 70s, the gun noises are all over the place. They don't even match up sometimes. Um, yeah, it was poorly shot in my opinion. Like, Wow. When you see these movies like even if we disagree on this i think one thing we'll agree on you saw her grow as a filmmaker when you look at loveless to near dark to blue steel like you see her making great strides oh yeah i'm not gonna say like 
I don't know, man. I watched it and I was my, my first thought was, how did they manage to waste time with some of these shots? And it's only 80 minutes. <laughs> um, so she proved she can make a movie, which is what you want to do. Um, like as a, as a feature director, like your first one, she proved she could handle a movie and push a narrative. So that is a plus. Uh, but the last thing I'll say before you can jump in, I felt like it was a poor man's wild one. That's exactly what I thought when I watched it. I was like, this is trying so hard to be like Brando. Right. So then when I looked up some of the comments, I was not surprised to see several people had that sentiment. They were like, yeah, this movie was okay, but I wanted to watch the wild one after watching this to see it done better. Um, hmm. I think I think someone put it best, and I'll leave it here. Someone put it best. This is not my quote. I pulled this from a comp from a IMDb commenter. They said this movie was more Terrence Malick than Wild One, and I actually, even if you take that as a slide or not a slide against Malick, I don't care. It was more artsy. It was more of an artistic exploration of a biker and small towns and violence and all that. It was more of an artistic approach um, than the wild one was. So I could see that. And I think that's what they were going for. I really think that they wanted to take a more artistic approach to it. Um, but yeah. Oh yeah. Last thing. The ending was very predictable. Did not like it. Um, but anyway, what'd you think of it? Cause it's going to be funny if you absolutely disagree with everything I said. <laughs> no, I, I don't disagree with, with, uh, very much of what you said. I, I do. I think, um, I think a wild one plus Malik is really a good comparison. Um, uh, and we should mention, I forgot to mention this. I should mention that um, it uh, was co-written. She, she co-wrote it and co-directed it with uh, a guy named Monty Montgomery, um, who is, uh, I guess he's now a producer, um, doesn't have a whole lot of credits to his name. So um, I don't know. He's definitely less. Yeah, I forgot to, I forgot to add that. That does let her off the hook a bit because we don't really know who is in mostly creative control. You know what I mean? Sure, 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 sure. Um, yeah, he, um, uh, by the way, interesting fact, he, uh, he plays the cowboy in David Lynch's Mulholland drive. Um, well, that is interesting. Okay. Yeah, um, a little bit of trivia there. Uh, but anyways, um, he, uh, yeah, so I, I agree with that. I think this is a this is a revisionist biker movie, um, very similar to um, you know uh, fill in the blank revisionist western. I think this is a revisionist biker movie. Um, but the biker movie, you know, as it stood in the fifties, you know, including the wild one, which honestly I don't even I don't even like that much. I mean, I get it, but I I can't say it's one of my you know a really great movie that I like to rewatch. Um, you know, I, I don't think there's a lot of there there in the biker movie. And so I think that making a revisionist one is a little bit challenging because there's not that many interesting ideas or interesting things to play with. Whereas the Western, you know, says a lot about American culture and American myth and blah, 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 you know, on and on and on what everybody has always said about Westerns. So I don't know. I took this as kind of a, like you said, kind of an artistic art house meditation on things that Catherine Bigelow happens to like about um, biker movies. And I think some parts of it are cool and interesting. It reminded me a lot of something that I would just see in an art gallery that is just like playing on a loop from a projector in like the Museum of Modern Art or something, um, as opposed to a movie. So I think it's definitely more of an artistic exercise than it is an actual movie. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, 
you know, I, I do think um, as far as being poorly shot, I, yeah, I will say, I don't under, I don't understand that at all. I could not disagree more. I, I think it was very sort of a painstakingly shot almost to a fault where you were like, okay, we get it. This is a nice composition. Can you move on to like telling a story or can you move on to like, you know, getting to know one of the characters or something? Um, it's a movie that's all style and very little substance. And by substance, I mean, narrative or character or even, well, Sorry, go can, ahead. Can I jump in real quick? Yeah, go ahead. I just want to jump in. So before we before we forget, not go back. When I say poorly shot, I understand what you're saying. Like there were some well put together shots, but when I say I guess poorly shot was was wrong. There was a large combination of scenes, and some of them look good, some of them look bad. But I didn't really find a lot of cohesiveness. Sure, um, we've talked about this before off pod, which is something that any. Anybody that wants to direct a movie or write a screenplay is afraid of, which is you never want someone to look at something you've done and say, hey, that was a good idea. There were some good scenes there, but nothing pulled them together. Yes. So I felt like it was very jumbled. Yeah. Um, and, and some of it, I'm not saying the whole thing was bad. I would there there were some shots where I was like, this is bad. Either either it was bad because it was over the top or it was bad because I just didn't like the like the way they put it together. Sure. Sure. Um, but it really felt jumbled to me. Like there wasn't a lot of cohesion. I guess I should have been more specific. Because yeah, I see what you're saying. I think some of it did look good. I know I get I get what you're saying. I get that. That it that it's less of a um you know, it, it, it's sort of like uh, th- there are some really cool looking shots and, and you can tell that she labored over some of the, uh, you know, the, the, the scenes, but it's like, okay, well, to what end? Like we're not, this isn't really telling a story and it's not really doing character. It's just sort of mood. It, it's a mood piece. And I'm going to be honest with you. Like sometimes I like a mood piece. If it's a mood piece about a world that I'm really interested in, you know, or that's, particularly beautiful or that can get away with not really having a story or characters or whatever. Sure. Okay. Like I'm fine with that, but you know, fifties biker movies is just not one of them. I can't imagine somebody making a mood piece about fifties biker movies and me enjoying that. It's just not the leather and the, uh, you know, I don't know. You can tell she's interested in it, but my interest level was not that high. Oh, and I, I do want to mention this. I saw this, um, that some of her um, influences for this movie, uh, Walker Evans, the American photographer, if anybody's familiar with his work, uh, Kenneth Anger, I'm, I'm sure was a big influence with the leather and the machines and everything. Uh, the painter, Edward Hopper, especially in the diner scene, um, big influence. And of course, the 1950s melodrama of Douglas Sirk, um, which I find a little bit ironic because um, Douglas Sirk was able to... Um, make movies about something, um, even if it to the naked eye, they just appeared to be kind of silly melodramas. And I think, I think that's ultimately what this movie is. There's not a lot going on there. It's, it's a student movie. Um, it's, it's a person's first movie. And, um, I will say though, I do think I like it better than you do. I would consider it a good movie, um, enjoyable. Um, but I would not recommend it to the general viewer. I would say, um, I would say I would only recommend this movie to someone who is a big Catherine Bigelow completist, or for some reason you are the p- type of person who a revisionist uh, biker gang movie uh, seems appealing to you. Otherwise, I don't think I would recommend it to the general audience. What do you what, what do you think? No, I wouldn't recommend it. I will say um, the last the last little critique. Um, I think fifteen minutes could have saved this movie. Um, like an extra fifteen. I think. Minutes? I think 
yeah, I think an extra 15 minutes could have fleshed out just just enough to where that punch at the end really means something. Sure. But I felt like it was really rushed and I felt like um, a lot of what happens at the hotel room and things like that, I don't know. It was just everything was so jumbled. Yeah. So no, I wouldn't recommend it. I, I would say, yeah, like you said, Bigelow completist, or you just want to watch like a weird art film about bikers, sure. or you're just really into being a biker and you just want to see what an artistic contemplation looks like of your life. <laughs> Aside from that, no, I, I, I would not recommend this movie. Yeah. Okay. All right. So you want to move on to um, the next movie, which is uh, 1987's uh, Near Dark. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what Near Dark is about, who it stars, and uh, yeah, what, what you thought about it? Well, Near Dark has the late, great Bill Paxton. I fucking love Bill Paxton. Hell yeah. He is great. It is so he's gone too soon. Um, Lance Hendrickson, he's a fucking you've seen him in everything. I mean, aliens, um, fun little Easter egg, the background since they were in this movie together when they're walking past a cinema. There's a sign movie playing as aliens. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, So this movie is about a gang of vampires and they're like more gypsy than actual like what we're used to seeing in this genre. If anyone has seen Dr. Sleep out there, they're very similar to that little band of gypsies that go around because they're a form of vampires as well in that movie. Um, This was an interesting movie. I I would rather you say what you thought about it first because you had never seen it. Right. Um, But before you do, I want to say, do you realize what else came out in 1987? Uh, what else came out in 1987? Like, like that is pertinent to this, not just randomly. Oh, Lost Boys. Yes. Yeah. That is a very interesting comparison to make given the subject matter. Right. Um, cause I thought Lost Boys was 89. So, cause my wife is a huge fan of Lost Boys. I am not, however. Right. So when I saw this movie, I was like, wait a minute. Lost Boys really borrowed a lot of elements from this, but then I found out they were the same year, and I was like, "Well, that's that makes it even more interesting." Right. Um, so, what did you think of Near Dark? First time seeing it. Well, I'll tell you, I did some research into this, and um, I mean, we think about it. We're six years later um, into um, into this movie, or six years into her career, she's directing a movie by herself. Um, she also co-wrote this movie with a guy named Eric Red. Uh, who is best known for co-writing this movie. Um, I was reading about it, and apparently she wanted to make a Western first. Um, She made her biker movie, and then she wanted to make a Western. Uh, But she wanted to make one that departed from cinematic convention, is what she said. And uh, they were having difficulty finding financial backing for a Western. So someone suggested that they try mixing a Western with another genre, which she was really into. And at the time vampire movies were very popular um, because Fright Night came out in 1985 and let's see the Lost Boys. It looked like, it looks like the Lost Boys came out the summer before near dark. So um, from what I'm reading on here, it looks like the Lost Boys was actually kind of an influence on near dark. Um, so that being said, I, I really, really loved this movie. I thought it was a great movie. Um, I thought it was, you know, a combination between a Western and a horror movie. I feel like it was mostly a horror movie. This is mostly an 80s horror movie, um, a really good 80s horror movie, but it's mixed with 
Um, it's mixed with Western iconography, um, Western aesthetics. Um, and I, you know, I, to be honest with you, I liked it from like a style perspective. Like there's some really, I mean, it's just cool. There's a lot of cool horror movie shit and a lot of cool Western shit. You can tell this is someone who is in love with, uh, American genre filmmaking. Um, and this is, and I think this will this will be true for the rest of her career. But you feel like she could direct any genre she wanted to, and really make it good. She knows what is exciting about these movies. Um, and but aside from the style and everything, I mean, I, you know, it was it was really moving. I mean, you know, the when when the the because um, we should say it's about a guy who. Um, gets caught up with a gang of vampires and turned into a vampire. And then his, his father is looking for him and, you know, it turns out to be surprisingly moving. I mean, there's a lot of father son stuff in here. There's a, a pretty powerful love story. I mean, I did not expect to be this emotionally moved by a fucking Western vampire movie, but I mean, it, it did the trick and some of the set pieces in here are incredible. I mean, the scene in the bar where they're just like, just offing motherfuckers and, you know, Bill Paxson slicing people up with his, his spurs on his cowboy boots. And, um, and that scene with the, where they're the classic Western scene where they're shooting the cabin, it's like a, you know, one last stand and the bullets aren't hurting them, but the sunlight that's coming in through the holes are hurting them. I mean, what a, what an ingenious set piece. Um, I don't know. I just, I loved this movie. Um, I don't know. What, what, what is your, what is your near dark take? Well, I'll say I loved it back in the day. I saw it for the first time. I think I was 13 or 14, watched it, loved it and like enjoyed everything about it. I didn't really understand what she was trying to do until later. Um, so I've seen it a few times. I would say my love waned a little bit this last time, but that's not a negative thing in terms of, I still really liked it. I just wouldn't say I love it anymore. Right. Um, in terms of the Western, that's one of my favorite aspects about it. The bar scene is my favorite scene in the movie yeah. because that's also another very iconic Western trope yep. of like outsiders going into the saloon and fucking killing everybody. Yeah. Um, I agree with you about the father and son story, but I will say this movie struggles with two things. The third act gets real shaky um, with what they were trying to do and the love story. I never really bought into it. Really? Um, okay. Yeah. I didn't really like their relationship but it didn't matter, man, because this movie was so fucking cool. Like it just was, it was a cool movie. Like, like very similar to Lost Boys. A lot of people like that movie because it's cool. Kiefer yeah. Sutherland, like he's just, they're fucking awesome. So this movie was beautifully shot. She grew a lot in six years, man. Like you could tell she really, either she was being held back with the Loveless or she just needed a little more time to really figure out what she wants to do. Sure. But she was ready for this movie. Well, also, I mean, like she controlled prob- it. Also, this is probably the first time she's working with like an actual budget, you know, and, and like that's true. Oh yeah. Making yeah. an actual, speaking of budget, speaking of budget, the special effects in this movie were very good. Yep. Um, and uh, I knew I was forgetting one thing. There was an aliens trifecta because Jeanette Goldstein was also an aliens. So, which is not surprising because I believe this right. is the point in her career when she was married to uh, James Cameron. I don't think she was so, married to him yet, but she had met him. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so either way, I, I love this movie. I mean, 
I, I like this movie, I should say. Like, I, I loved it a lot more before my taste in vampire movies changed. Right. So uh, even even though my tastes have changed a bit, I still really enjoyed it. It was very uh, specific. Like, this is not a generic vampire movie. Right. And I love the aspect of the gypsies at, like, like they're traveling, they're going around, like, they never really turn into, like, vampires. Right. Like, they're just people that are vampires, but they never turn monstrous or anything. And my favorite part of the movie in terms of line or exchange is when Caleb, the uh, the young man who was basically bitten and then pulled into their little gang, mm-hmm. asked Lance Hendrickson character, uh, Jesse, uh, how old are you? And yeah. he laughed and he's like, put it this way, I fought for the South. <laughs> and it was so fucking awesome because it's like, what an answer. Yeah. Like, yeah, man. So no, needless to say, this was a huge step up from the Loveless um, and I really enjoyed it. High recommend it for anybody who has not seen it, put it on. It is, uh, it's, it's, I would say it is, uh, a vampire classic. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, coming, coming to this movie, just like sort of brand new and really having no, you know, baggage or no love lost for, you know, vampires or anything really, or, or even Westerns for that matter. I mean, I like Westerns, but I don't think I like them nearly as much as you do. Um, I mean, it, yeah, this is just a hell of a ride. You know, I mean, just uh, just a hell of a ride. And, um, you, you know, a couple of things that, that were interesting to me based on what you were saying is, you know, she's playing with uh, while well, she's playing with a lot of tropes of 80s movies. But um, two more tropes that I think she's playing with that we really haven't mentioned is um, uh, the road movie. You know, the the I guess the, the most classic example of the genre would probably be like Paris, Texas or something. But you know, the road movie where you're just, uh, you know, Thelma and Louise, you know, where you're just like traveling, um, through the West somehow trying to get somewhere, you know? Um, Oh yeah. And I feel like she's playing with that tropes and another, um, section, another little kind of tropes that she's playing with, which of course is a big lost boys thing is the, you know, the warriors thing where it's just like a, a group of like punks, you know what I mean? Who are just like, hell bent on just destroying sort of like laid back or sort of like conservative, like Reagan America. You know what I mean? You know how that was like a recurring element in a lot of eighties action movies and especially horror movies where it would be like these like kids with like dyed hair and like mohawks and shit. And they like, they like act weird and they like say like weird things and they just like their job is to just antagonize people, you know? And, um, I feel like that is, um, that is that is a trope that, that she plays with really well um, with these characters, but of course, as we get to know them, they're, they're not they're not just sort of a, a, a you know a, a force for evil or whatever who are going around fucking shit up. They're actually real, interesting, um, sort of tender characters who it's really affecting whenever they um, <laughs> whenever they fucking explode. I mean, what a I mean, what a movie, honestly, like. I don't know. I, I, you got to recommend this movie. Everybody should see this movie. Go out and see this movie. Yeah. If you don't like, if you don't like eighties horror movies, or you think that it's a bad idea for a movie, an eighties horror movie that's also a western, then you're wrong, and you'll probably like this movie. Um, yeah, big step up for her. I think. I think big step up. And I was looking at the uh, IMDb data, and it looks like um, her first movie, The Loveless, just didn't have a budget. Like it looks like they just went down from New York and just filmed it in Georgia, sort of 
on the cheap. But uh, yeah, this one had a budget of five million dollars. So this is her first time ever working with a budget, and it, you know you can tell it's 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 fucking good. You know. No, that is awesome. Uh, and 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 the fact that it, it was it was even more like I'm sure it was more confident building for the studio because you saw what she was able to do when she actually gets a budget. Sure. So. Sure. Oh, um, just one last thing about Near Dark. Uh, that music, great score by Tangerine Dream. I agree with that. Score was good. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Tangerine Dream. I mean, if you like Drive, if you like, uh, you know, that kind of uh, what's the word I'm looking for, like synth wave, you know, that kind of thing. Like this is exactly the kind of music that that all that Drive stuff is based on. And uh, yeah, I mean, hell of a score, hell of a music, hell of a movie. Really, really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Are you going to take us into Blue Steel? Yeah, and I was saving my Eric Red fact until the Blue Steel, but you kind of sprung it early. Oh, but I bad. will say you are you are wrong, sir. What am I wrong? Eric about? Red. Eric Red wrote the fucking Hitcher, man. The Hitcher is fucking awesome. That's a Rutger Hauer classic. Right. Um, well, I've never seen the Hitcher, so I apologize. I'm just saying, man. I'm not saying it's a good movie. I'm just saying, like. It's a it's a fun ride. He just plays a fucked up hitchhiker, and it's crazy over the top. Um, Wait, he plays somebody? either way. Yeah, oh, Rutger, Rutger Howard, Howard does. plays somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rutger Howard. Does. Gotcha. Okay, all right. Um, yeah, man. Uh, it's also got Jennifer Jason Lee in it. Uh, anyway, I haven't seen it in years, but I did fucking love it. The remake's terrible with Sean Bean. Damn, we should um, we should watch it for a, an episode or something. Yeah, no, it's worth watching. I love Rutger Howard. So, uh, all right. So Catherine Bigelow did something really weird here, man. This movie was fucking weird. Okay. <laughs> it's called blue still. It's got Jamie Lee Curtis, Ron Silver, and the great Clancy Brown, who I will give a huge shout out to because he is fucking great. That man has been consistently working since like the early seventies. I think, <laughs> um, I, I think his IMDB is like 286 acting credits. <laughs> um, Obviously, he's in one of the greatest movies ever made, Shawshank Redemption. I love this guy. So he was great in this. It was weird to see him so young with like flowing hair. Right. Um, so this movie, man, I don't know, dude, this it was strange. I didn't know what direction this movie wanted to go. Like 15 minutes into it, you're like, what the fuck is going on? Um, uh, what's his face? Time, Tom Sizemore shows up. He shows up like in the first 10 minutes and he's like everybody's favorite crackhead because he suffered from uh, substance abuse in real life. So pretty much every role he had in Hollywood, he was like a scumbag or a drug addict right? because he was in real life. Um, so <laughs> this was his debut role and he gets blown away in the first five, 10 minutes of the movie. Right. Um, also, you may have obviously realized Richard Jenkins was in this. So that was nice. Right. Um, Kevin Dunn, who I fucking love. He's from Veep Warrior. Um, and, uh, Ron Silver, who not a lot of people may know, but he played the bad guy in this. He was in a great movie called Find Me Guilty. And that's where I recognize his face from. Um, great, so, great, great set of character actors in this movie. Absolutely. Yeah. Like this, this is like a home run. That's, that's a better way to put it. I was just basically going over how much I like them. That's a great way to put it. This is like, home run character actors. Everybody is really just nailing their part. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they, so each one of them has like w at least one or two cool things to say, you know, like, yeah, like, like a handful of moments, right. like 
where it's like, okay, yeah, I get it. Yeah. Um, I will say I love the late 80s, early 90s style cop movie. I'm a sucker for it. Lethal Weapon is one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, and this gives us a break from that buddy cop kind of idea. You know, another four, or 48 hours was in the 80s. Sure. Um, Lethal Weapon. I believe Beverly Hills Cop was late 80s. Mm-hmm. I might yeah. be wrong about that. Yeah, it was 87, um, I think. Okay. So this gives us a nice little break from that, but in the weirdest way, like it touches on like sexism, misogyny, like people hate cops, uh, it touches on PTSD. Um, I, I don't know, man. Like I liked it. Like it was a fun movie to watch because I just like movies from that time. I love cop movies from that time. Sure. Um, she did show off a little more style in this movie. So you could tell she, she was still growing as a filmmaker at this point. Right. Um, we also, I forgot to point out blue still came out in 1990. So this is three years after that, right. after uh, near dark. Um, you know, one of the many reasons I love cop movies from that time, as I already mentioned, the guns are always most of the time edited poorly, but also they always have way too many bullets. <laughs> For those of you who aren't familiar with revolvers, uh, they usually have five, six bullets. Um, yeah, this one, I believe the final shootout, I think he had like a hundred. Um, <laughs> he had a bump but, um, right to the bottom. Yeah, it, Dude, it was so weird how hateful people were about her being a cop. I don't know what was happening in the 90s, like, because I was four years old. So I don't know what the, like, political situation was. Right. Um, so it was just a weird movie. Like, I enjoyed it. It was, it, I, to me, it's, uh, it's, it's much better than The Loveless. It's not as good as Near Dark, but it's still a good movie. Jamie Lee Curtis was great. But uh, this movie was fucked up. And I forgot to add the bad guy is a fucking Wall Street broker. Like, that's really fucking on the nose a bit. Right. Um, so I don't know, man. What did you think of this movie? I, um, well, actually, I um, I had seen this movie before um, for some reason. Okay. Uh, I, I watched it just completely independent of Catherine Bigelow. Um, I had heard somebody talk about it or I, I, I believe I have no actual idea where I've actually seen it before, or I, I should say, I know I have no idea why I watched it before. Um, but it was, I, I love this movie, dude. I, I, I really do. You know, I, I think, um, I think a lot of, I think a lot of, uh, a person's enjoyment of the work of Catherine Bigelow is, uh, dependent upon, how well you like the genres that she's playing around with, you know, um, if you don't like biker movies, which I would probably count myself among people who are indifferent to biker movies, you know, um, you're not going to like the loveless. Um, but this movie, I agree. I agree. It is a cop movie. It definitely is a cop movie. Of course she's a cop. I mean, we should, and we should say it's about a, it's about Jamie Lee Curtis and she is a cop and, uh, shenanigans ensue. You know, there's a murderer, there's a well, serial killer, etc. Uh, hold on, hold on, real quick. I'm sorry, okay. I should have said this before. This is more than shenanigans ensuing. Okay, <laughs> she kills a dude, right? Totally justified. Right. Tom Sizemore is a crazy motherfucker. He points the gun at her. She blows him away. Right. Like there is no gray area there. Sure. But the crazy guy, played by Ron Silver, who turns into the bad guy of the movie. Right. He takes the gun because it's on the floor. He keeps looking at it. The camera's panning, like moving around. It goes back to him, and he grabs it. He leaves the scene of the crime. Right. So the 
the uh, the guy, the cashier at the, at the station was obviously freaking the fuck out. So he couldn't remember. I think they said, oh, he may have had a knife. Like right. they couldn't remember if he had a gun or not. Right. He was he thought he was going to fucking die. Sure. So this guy takes the gun. She gets suspended because it looks like she just fucking off the dude. Right. Like she shot. She shot him like four times. Like it was more than just a, I'm going to wing this guy. Like. Right. Um, so it looked bad. So he takes this gun. He obviously has some psychological issues. He starts carving her name in the side of the bullets and killing people. <laughs> it's fucking weird, man. I can't believe I even forgot to mention that. Like, yeah, that is bizarre. We'll see. Okay. I think there's a lot going on here. Uh, and let me just. Absolutely. There is. Let me, let me just say from the outset that. Um, let me just say from the outset that I think there's another genre that she's playing around with. And it's a genre that I don't even know if there's a name for, but I know personally, I've seen a lot of these movies because these are the kinds of movies my mom used to like to watch. And she, we would like record them on cable or, or not record them on cable. We would like, uh, or yeah, sometimes we would like on VHS tapes on cable or just, you know, rent them from block. Like my mom would be the type of person who would go into like the non new release section of blockbuster and just see a movie with like, you know, an actress that she liked and it was like about like a a serial killer or whatever, and just rent it and we would watch it. And the genre, I guess I'm talking about is the kind of movie where a woman gets involved with a psychopath of some sort. Sometimes it's even her husband. Sometimes it's just, you know, it's like there'll be some beautiful European man who like, gives her roses and sweeps her off her feet, but turns out to be like a necrophiliac or some shit, you know, like there's a genre of these types of movies. I don't even know if there's a name for it, but, and the, and it's almost like a horror movie where the woman is like the last woman standing and she has to defeat this psychopath that she's become romantically entangled with. Um, And I think there was a lot of those in the eighties and early nineties. And I think that blue steel is also playing on that genre. Um, and again, I, I don't even know if there's a name for it, but I know there's a, t- a ton of movies like that because my mom used to love that shit and we would watch them together. And so that I got big vibes of that. I was like, oh yeah, I've seen, not only have I seen like 80s cop movies, but I've seen movies like this where a woman has to extricate herself from the grips of a psychopath, you know? Um, um, real quick, the genre you're referring to, I didn't want to cut you off. No, no, uh, no. It's a very easy genre. It is the lifetime genre. Like sure. this was like sure. a Patty Duke. Now, not, no, no disrespect. This is oddly enough the second time we've mentioned lifetime on this podcast. Right. That is no disrespect, but this was very much so like a a a product of that type of genre to where it's like, sure. yeah, the dude sweeps you off your feet. And like you said, he's a fucking psycho. And right. he was a fucking psycho in this movie. But but I, I do think there's a little bit of a difference because I don't know. Well, A, I don't know how when the Lifetime channel existed. But I know that, you know, back in the 80s and 90s when there was a middle class of, of movies that existed, like a mid-budget movies, you know, like those, yeah. those types of movies were being made with like uh, mid-level to, to A-list actresses and being released in theaters and then on Blockbuster as opposed to being relegated to the lifetime channel like they would be today. You know what I mean? Like it, does that make sense? Like, no, that, no, that's a, that's a very good point. I mean, no, that's a very good point to say that. Yeah. Like, I don't know when the lifetime channel came to be either, but there used to be a market before the market got crushed by obviously all that's happening with, 
cinema and has been happening for the last 20 years or so. Right. Um, that market got crushed and those movies then did get pushed aside to like a lifetime USA style network. Right. US, yes. USA is a good one. Yeah. It's yes. You're right. Yeah. That's yeah. Lifetime is the best shorthand for it though, for like our purposes like today, because that's where those movies live today, but used to, you know, you could go to a video store, you could go to blockbuster and you could go just, you know, section M through L and you could find 10 movies like this, you know, and knock yourself out for a weekend or whatever, you know? And, um, so, so I, I don't know. My point in saying all that is that I feel like this is a mashup of those two genres. And there's a lot going on here thematically. Like the fact that she is so interested in being a cop is fascinating because usually you don't see women this obsessed with violence and power in movies. And she is a woman who is obsessed with violence and power. Like when her, her partner asks her, like, why did you, why did you want to be a cop? And she's like, I want to, I want to blow motherfuckers away or whatever. And he like laughs and she's like, ah, that's a joke. It's not a joke. She, yeah, it's never a joke. She does the same thing. The other guy, when she's like, I like to crack skulls, like that is not a joke. She was being serious. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's interesting, man. I mean, that's, uh, Oh, okay. Like our hero, our female hero is interested in violence in a uniquely masculine performance of violence. And the, when, you know, when she's putting the uniform on and the camera is, you know, I'm clearly obsessed with her uniform and her, her tool, the tools of her trade. I mean, it's called blue steel for God's sakes, you know? Yeah. And like the opening credit of the actual gun, yes, like yes. when they were panning over the gun. And it's interesting because it's almost like when you look back on it now and look at like the cinematic landscape that we live in would like, um, sometimes obviously exploitation of women in movies, like sure. with their bodies or anything this was almost like turning it on its head and it's like, yeah, I'm exploring something, but it's not the body or the sexuality. It's like the lust for power and violence. And like, yeah, this is me. I'm, I'm a woman, but I still want to be a cop and I still want to fuck you up. Like, and there's nothing you can do about it. Yes. What, what, what made it interesting to me is, and this is, if this was made in, if this was made in like modern times or whatever, or not even modern times, if this was made by a more hacky director, um, a hacky director would go into this movie and go, yeah, we're going to do girl power. We're going to do cops, but girls, and it's going to be like life affirming. Whereas Catherine Bigelow, takes, oh, yeah. Catherine Bigelow takes a little bit of a different angle, which says her angle is, okay, you see all these men that are cops in movies. Yeah. They're all fucking psychopaths. I'm going to make a movie with a fucking psychopath as a cop, but it's going to be a woman, but she's still going to be a psychopath. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's funny. Yeah. And, and I, I'm glad you said that because something that was in my notes that I did not say is, is like when you look at movies like Die Hard, when you look at uh, Martin Riggs and Lethal Weapon, right. like they are operating under their own set of rules and their circumstances. Right. By definition, like Martin Riggs is a psycho who should have never been allowed to stay on the force after displaying suicidal tendencies and things like that. Right. He jumped off a building with a man handcuffed to him for God's sake. I mean, so when you, when you explore that, especially with 48 hours uh, with Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy as well, yeah. when you explore that, like that's a very good point. It's like, yeah, this isn't obnoxious or pandering. I'm not trying to like make a tongue in cheek type of statement sure. about, sexism or any of that this is just a movie i'm doing and this is the hero and it's a woman and they can be crazy too exactly it's like, it's, it's it's look here's a woman who is 
seduced by power and violence, the power and violence of the police force in exactly the same way that a man would be. And And normally in these movies, like the wives are either, they either left them because they're too hard ass and like they're crazy alcoholics and the job's taking over their life or they're like naggy and like, oh, you better be safe out there. You better bring home when I ask you for dinner. I'm tired of you working all the time. So yeah, like that's a, that's a great point. Bill Simmons has a great uh, word for that. The wet blanket girlfriend or wife, you know, like I feel like in, in every sports movie or every like cop movie from, you know, that era, it's like you always have like the the woman and her chief job is just to absolutely whine and put like a, a wet blanket on all the cool shit that's happening in the movie, you know? And that's it's so fascinating to to have like not just a woman engaging in all the cool shit, but a woman engaging in all the cool shit who is again seduced by the power and violence of being a police officer. Like it's it's I don't know. There's, there's that going on, but I also like, and this is a different tangent, but I also like the, the weird sex stuff in this movie. You know, there's, it it reminds me of the David Cronenberg movie crash or of, you know, blue velvet, any of those, you know, sex lies and videotape, any of those movies from the eighties or nineties that were really kind of about weird sex stuff, you know? Um, And this this movie has that in it too that that this this psychopath man he's not like her he's not just seduced by power and violence he's like actually physically aroused by it like it's a it's a sexual thing for him that that is even more pathological than whatever she's got going on in her mind you know and i think that's interesting man i i think there's something very lynchian about it and very um I don't know, man. I, I I just I really like this movie. I'm gonna be honest with you, man. This it's I think there's a lot of the interesting thematic stuff going on here. And does it all cohere? I mean, honestly, not all the time, but I think mostly it works. Like, I don't know. I agree. I, I would say this is another one that I would recommend and be like, look, if you like those cop movies from the 80s and 90s like the ones we've discussed like you'll i think you'll dig this movie check it out yeah 100 percent. i agree i i would recommend this to the general viewer 100 percent. i mean there's there's just so many interesting things going. and it's more um and of course we'll get to point break but i think it's more it's more artsy than near dark and point break um but it's it's no less interesting and and resonant and I don't know. This movie set me to thinking a lot more than, and it, again, we're not going to talk about Point Break yet. But even if I may have enjoyed like Near Dark and Point Break more than this movie, like I certainly had a lot more to think about after this movie. There was there's a lot of interesting threads to pull on and to sort of, um, I don't know. This movie is so fetishistic, man. I mean, the way that I don't know the way the way she moves and the way the way that the camera kind of worships her uniform and her power and her. Uh, and the guns and, you know, I, this is a movie that is besought with, with power and violence much in the same way that the main character is. Um, yeah. The opening credit alone gives that away. The opening credit is like wrapping around the gun, going down the barrel, going down the cylinders. Like, absolutely. Right. It, it's like Harmony Corinne, Corinne, like, uh, filming the girls in spring breakers. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Oh yeah. But it's a gun. Like it, yeah, and, and honestly, like as far as like just from a genre perspective, it's not all artsy shit. Like the Loveless, like yeah, okay, it's mostly just like artsy shit. But I don't think this is mostly artsy shit. I mean, some of it is really genuinely thrilling, and like some of the the scenes are um, 
are, are genuinely like effective as genre fare where you're like, holy shit, like who's going to, who's going to do what? Or there was a couple of times where I felt like the movie was just over and then like, it just keeps going. You know what I mean? Like it kind of reversed. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I, and I like that. Yeah. So blue steel. All right. So let's recap. So, um, loveless, what are we going to say? No. Yeah. No, I would say, I would say uh, loveless is not recommended. Um, but uh, you know, unless those caveats, unless any of the yeah. shit that we talked about were interesting, near dark and blue steel. I, I think hell yeah, man, you're gonna have a good time if you watch either of those movies. Absolutely, highly recommend from both of them. Um, the next episode we are talking about Point Break, Strange Days, The Weight of Water, and K19, The Widowmaker. Hell yeah, what a what a name for a movie. Absolutely, I'm looking forward to this episode. It has. Uh, not only what I think is her best movie, uh, but also a modern masterpiece that should be in uh, Congress libraries and uh, shown in schools across the land and uh, basically required viewing is what I'm saying. <laughs> Followed um, by three pieces of dog shit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I'm actually kidding. I've not seen any of those three movies. Well, yeah, I've seen all of them, but I'm happy to rewatch them. Um so uh, before we wrap it up, we had a couple of comments um, on our post. Dylan's, Dylan's Take Podcast said that Whiplash was his favorite movie of the decade. Okay. okay. And uh, cannot agree with him more on that. We obviously both uh, heaped our praises on that movie while recording. Hell yeah. And uh, my wife uh, threw in that her favorite movie was Hereditary of the decade. She's very adamant about that. She loves that movie. Yeah, so I wanted those are the two comments we got about favorite movies of the decade. So I wanted to give those a shout out. Hell yeah, yeah. Keep on, uh, you know, follow us on Instagram. Uh, we should be up on uh, a bunch of different platforms now, right? Which platforms are we up on now? Yeah, right now you can get us at Anchor. You can get us at Spotify, iTunes, uh, Google Play will be soon. Stitcher, Castbox, basically everywhere that will take an RSS feed. I'm trying to get us there. Uh, but the big ones, iTunes and Spotify, we are up on now. So be sure to check us out. Hell yeah. Pocket Cast um, too. That's my own personal uh, podcast app of choice. Yeah. Pocket Cast. I saw yeah. up on there too. Yeah, that one too. Um, Silver Screen Video Podcast on Instagram. You can also hit us up on Gmail, Silver Screen Video Podcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you thought of these movies if you've watched them. Um, if not watch them, let us know what you think. If you have any movies you want us to watch or just check out and talk about, let us know. We will be happy to, uh, to do that and, uh, just kind of get an open dialogue with you guys. Hell yeah. But I think that'll do it for this episode. Unless you have something more to add. No, I'm good, man. Uh, uh, what's, uh, what is your sign off again? Did we talk about a sign off? The sign off is thanks for stopping by silver screen video. We will see y'all next week. Hell yeah. Bye.